Welcome to the Dive Panel. To support the show and get access to our second weekly episode, become a patron at patreon.com slash deathpanelpod. And if you'd like to help us out a little bit more, share the show with your friends, post about your favorite episodes, pick up a copy of Health Communism from your local bookstore or request it from your local library, and follow us at deathpanel underscore. So today, Abby, Jules, and I are here, and we're going to be talking about an essay that Jules wrote that was published in The Baffler in October called Doctors Who, Radical Lessons from the History of DIY Transition. And I'm really glad that we're getting a chance to talk about this and some of the really interesting and important questions that you pose here, Jules. And I'm sorry that it's taken us this long to get to it. I mean, things were hectic with the book coming out in October and you both joining the show, but it's only become even more timely (laughs) since October. And, you know, it really ended up with some eerie timeliness in this in the context of as we were talking about before we started the recent decision to try and make more abortion drugs available over the counter. And the way that the FDA did it was really sort of leaving a lot of administrative burdens in place. And so there are so many great questions that we can get into here. But I'm excited to talk about this piece. And I think to start us off, Jules, do you mind walking us through the piece, just sort of an overview of your argument, what you get into, and some of the histories that support what you show in the piece? Yeah, this this piece in some ways was really motivated by, you know, this sort of broader moment we're living through where we've been watching trans healthcare not only get rolled back or sort of be menaced politically, but actually start to be banned uh, in a sort of escalating kind of way. And then, of course, the Supreme Court decision rolling back the right to abortion. I'd kind of been keeping an eye around the edges of people's reactions and sort of more local conversations sort of circling around these two ongoing events and seeing the concept of do-it-yourself healthcare sort of coming up in both cases. And both of those cases really having a lot to do with history. You know, the idea that, well, wasn't there a time in the past where people who needed abortion, you know, had to basically get it outside of the scope of the law? And wasn't that also the predominant condition that trans people faced in trying to transition, you know, until relatively recently? And isn't some of what's happening right now sort of pushing us, you know, back in that direction? And And, you know, I I think those are sort of understandable reactions. But to me, ultimately, you know, as a historian, I'm always happy to say, like, time can't flow in reverse. And so I was sort of interested in, well, what are the radical legacies uh, that we Mm -hmm. actually inherit? Uh, And in particular, because I'm I'm working on a larger research and and eventually book project about the history of do-it-yourself transition, what's actually really interesting about that to me is... And it's something that you just really wouldn't know from reading the way transition or trans healthcare is narrated, except maybe on this show, you know, that <laughs> DIY is actually the predominant route through which most trans people have transitioned, including medically, you know, over the last, let's say, century for sure, but certainly since, you know, maybe the mid 20th century. And so I kind of wanted to think about that that frame shift, right? You know, so often having to turn to do it yourself healthcare is framed purely as the outcome of a kind of tragic deficit oh mm-hmm. something was taken away or 
ideally you would rather go to a doctor uh, and get all of this legitimately, but you can't, so you have to do it yourself. And actually don't think that's what trans history tells us at all, because the doctors have been let's be honest, real shitty. Um, and also it just, the idea of access has been sort of a mirage or a joke for most trans people for a really long time. And so I kind of just wanted to play around in this piece with telling a different set of stories and telling mm -hmm. them in this more sort of journalistic way, um, and sort of arrive at some kind of thicker, juicier questions that I think we have every reason to be preoccupied with right now, which is like, okay, you know, we've lost certain legal rights, but, Actually, what are our counter visions of freedom um, that we're trying to exercise when we take our own health and our own uh, embodiment and our own flourishing into our own hands, not just in an individual sense, but in a kind of community mutual aid sense. And so mm -hmm. th that's really kind of that that was really sort of the impetus to me. And I kind of tried to to follow that by telling some really compelling stories. I think probably listeners have come to, maybe have come to associate this with me before, but like for me, history is just like finding the most unbelievable, fascinating stories and and just sharing them and, and telling, you know, sharing with as many people as possible what people in the past have managed to do um, and kind of expanding our sense of personal and political and creative imagination that way. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I think this point that you you make very early on that you brought in just now of the kind of distance between the way that we talk about the context of DIY medical care or even sort of seeking care outside of the kind of established medicine canon often sort of falls under this category. You have this conversation that's very one note where people say like, okay, you know, you, you've got this tragic circumstance of people being failed by the system who sort of turn to this as a means of last resort. And it really kind of naturalizes the structural and psychic harm of things like administrative burdens. It's not merely that administrative burdens turn people away and mean people can't access things that they should be able to access, right? Like this is a literal sort of sucking of time and energy from the person actually trying to seek care. And these relations and these kind of gatekeeping modes that you're forced to go through in order to access transition care in and of itself is a burden that isn't benign, right? These are things that you might have many more reasons than this kind of like, oh, I've been sort of left through the cracks to pursue DIY because the whole experience in and of itself of sort of seeking the diagnosis, there are these layers of authority and paternalism that are not harmless in and of themselves. And I, I think what we're seeing here, too, is the kind of the echo here, the gap between the kind of idea of what's safe and what's legal and what's allowed and mm -hmm. what doctors are, are willing to do and the kind of idea of things being done towards an ethics or towards a kind of idea of regulated safety that's just really very far from the actual experience of people trying to seek the care and, and really doesn't have much in mind when it comes to the actual care relationship and the needs of the person who needs the care. It's really focused on, you know, indemnity and is the doctor going to get sued? And we're seeing this all over the place, whether it's in trans care for kids, whether it's in, you know, people being in a state where there isn't an abortion law passed, but there might be one. And so the doctors are preemptively doing it or there's an unclear law, so they're not. But, but you see this all over the place. Exactly. And I think, you know, 
Well, I think a lot of what my work tries to do in general, or the kind of question that I bring, or the ethos that I bring to my work has to do with like, well, what do trans people know? Or what kind of trans knowledge uh, is sort of sitting here untapped to help us make sense of much bigger problems or structures? And I think in this case, you know, we can get into some of the examples, but part of what trans people's experience with transition helps us understand is a distinction between medicine and medicalization, right? Medicine, yes. oh my God, yes. Venus, <laughs> right? But like it's, it's bedrock, it's basic, but I think it's actually really radical and powerful for everyone mm-hmm. to, yeah. to understand this distinction in their own lives, however it plays out for you. If medicine is something, you know, that we can understand as including procedures, surgeries, medications, hormones, things that can be administered, right, inside a doctor's office or outside a doctor's office can be sometimes administered by yourself or by a friend. That expertise is dislodged um, from institutional homes, even if that's where they've sort of been naturalized or coercively gatekept, right? Then medicalization mm-hmm. is a sort of process, a process of that involves power and subjectification that comes at mm-hmm. high cost. Uh, And that can actually take something, you know, good and wonderful, like a medicine, like say estrogen, right? And turn it into a vector of harm or exhaustion or extraction. Uh, and, And I think, again, for me, it's like, this is sort of an evergreen point. I think studying DIY transition would be interesting in any particular time and place, but, you know, especially right now, right? Just thinking about the real stakes that so many kinds of people face for so many people who are marginalized in a kind of similar way by the political economy of health, particularly in the United States, although it's not clear to me that trans healthcare is you know that much better in countries with national healthcare systems. But in any case, that there is a sort of knowledge or know-how that comes from making that separation between what is the medicine I would like to give to myself or I would like to get access to versus um, am I willing or do I even seed mm-hmm legitimacy to medicalization. And I think there's a different way to tell the story of trans people if the vast majority of them have actually never been medicalized because they just simply couldn't have been even if they had want to be. Well, hold on, that's a whole story or history of expertise that resides in the DIY. It resides much more locally, much more in community. It's much more subcultural. It's much more neighborhood specific. And it's not a cathartic, you know, kind of romance um, sort of story with triumph at the end of it. But it's it really raises, I think, some interesting points about how to conceptualize you know, health outside of the really, really devastating um, limited frames through which, you know, we've all sort of been acculturated to it. So what I was kind of thinking about when I read this piece, because my sort of knowledge about, you know, medicalization and kind of the role of physician authority and the history of sort of DIY medical intervention My knowledge about that stuff is mostly around abortion and like I'm not an expert about that. But when I was reading this piece, I just remember thinking so much about the abortion discourse that went on this whole summer. So like Mm. for some context, last spring, I wrote a profile of Lena Wen, MD, like everyone's favorite sort of COVID minimizer. Um, Yes. But as I was kind of researching Lena Wen's background and her her role at at Planned Parenthood, I remember being really rubbed the wrong way by how Lena Wen conceptualized kind of like the issue with abortion politics in the U.S. 
And the way that she conceptualized it is like, well, abortion is just normal health care that for some reason is like siloed in its own thing, you know, like these freestanding clinics, whatever. And we will achieve, you know, advances in abortion access in the United States by bringing abortion care more firmly under the umbrella of medical authority, you know, physician discretion, integrating it, you know, sort of back where it belongs with the rest mm -hmm. of, of health care that you get. And until I read this, I really couldn't like articulate what exactly about that, like kind of pissed me off so much. And then over the summer, like right after the Dobbs decision happened, a lot of the kind of discourse response to the overturning of Roe was like, again, it rubbed me the wrong way. And I, I couldn't quite place my finger on it because it was very gatekeepy and it had the timber of it, you know, <laughs> conveyed in these like pastel infographics was sit down. You don't know what you're doing. Wait for further instruction. The experts <laughs> have got this. You mm. might think that you want to, you know, build networks with people to like ensure abortion access or, you know, get, figure out DIY obstetrics gynecology. You might think that you want to do stuff like that, but like you need to sit down, shut up. Like this isn't the handmaid's tale and like the nonprofit workers, you know what I mean? And the, the mm -hmm. progressive doctors have, have got this. So just like wait for us to like do the work. And when I read this piece, I was like, oh, right. <laughs> the whole, the whole problem with all of that shit is that the whole problem with abortion politics in the United States, I think, is how medicalized abortion is, how firmly kind of like under the aegis or whatever of, of medical authority abortion is. And in the kind of legalistic discourse about abortion, like there's nothing, you know, it's all the government and like physicians, <laughs> right, who have sort of competing interests in determining whether any individual person can get an abortion. But like what's not emphasized what's not important is autonomy <laughs> dignity self-determination you know what i mean like things like that and so kind of reading this history of like diy trans healthcare like diy transition really kind of helped me solidify kind of what i think is the nexus of the problem with how you know these very professionalized activist groups and doctors groups and sort of civil society at large has been responding to you know, the major blows to abortion access that we've witnessed this year. No, and I think you raise a great point, Abby, which is that so much of sort of what the issue is with the dynamic and the conversation about healthcare access in general is that it's often talked about in terms of making sure to sort of open pathways for physician authority to expand. You know, you talk mm -hmm. about wanting to establish PCP relationships, you know, that the pinnacle of quote unquote normalizing disability is to have um, accessible exam rooms. And the idea that like it's aspirational and liberatory <laughs> to sort of mm -hmm. submit something to the normalizing structure of something like medical authority, which has this really important social role of sort of certifying valid and invalid recipients. And so you kind of have this really important and interesting, you know, refusable to sensationalize DIY and also sort of sensationalize like the social role of the physician as being um, kind of causal towards anything here, because a lot of it is about 
trying to make sure that we can sort of provide care with abundance and how to think through like collaboration with professionals in a way that is not about coming under the umbrella of professional expertise and authority and that kind of mm. like rubber stamped institutional approval. I think maybe another way of saying what you just said, just I think the important task is like figuring out how autonomous health movements can productively interface with like institutional medical authority. I think that's kind of like a yeah. big open question. And at least from the abortion politics side, I don't know that reproductive justice advocates have totally wrestled with this. And you can see, I mean, it's like, it's a mess out there. You know what I mean? It's like, it's really like this, this kind of jagged interface between like the, the self-help that people are trying to do around abortion. And then, yeah, these like various medical establishments that fall under a variety of different mm -hmm. rules and things. It just stands out to me how much we're coached to understand the power involved in the clinic or in medicalization as top down, right? And and yes. therefore, as if we could toggle back and forth between good top down power and bad top down power, <laughs> which ultimately always leads to the same issue of putting all your eggs in one basket. But part part of what I think is really interesting to me, and is important to me in refusing also to idealize or romanticize trans people's DIY um, sort of necessities, right, is that they're not always organized kinds of efforts, right? I opened the piece describing mm -hmm. uh, a group of trans women of color that had this sort of underground network, very loosely, could you call it a network, but who basically just, you know, took the bus from San Francisco in Northern California all the way down to San Diego, across the border into northern Mexico and would, you know, buy estrogen, you know, like lots of other Americans going to buy products um, in in Mexico at a steep discounter without particular uh, regulatory oversight and then smuggle them back uh, to their home community in a very poor neighborhood in San Francisco in the Tenderloin and, you know, administer them from there. And, you know, uh, that story is one that I was told, you know, through oral history interviews and, you know, one of the things I learned even just as a researcher was I was sort of kind of pushing, you know, to get a kind of systematic account, like how often did you go? Like how much did you buy? How did you know how much to dose? I was sort of asking questions like, tell me how you acted like a doctor or a nurse, right? And, mm -hmm. and the person I was interviewing kept pushing back on me and being like, what are you talking about? That doesn't make any <laughs> sense. Like, you know, for her, it was like, it's a thing that we did because there was literally one doctor in town back then you know, in the late 1960s or early 1970s, who you could have maybe gone to pay for some real shady, shady hormone, you know, preparation that you didn't even know what was in it. And the guy's office was disgusting and run down. So of course, it was much less safe than what they were doing. But like, they weren't organized into a sort of fully fledged, you know, kind of movement. And, you know, I contrast that story a little bit later in the piece with, you know, some activist efforts later in the 1970s, based out of Miami, where a trans liberation organization really did start to say like, well, what if we opened our own kind of clinic? And they really did model it sort of on, you know, some feminist um, health clinics and some feminist health precedents. But it was one really hard because these were really poor, you know, trans women. And two, there were much more just sort of urgent kind of emergency level issues they were having to organize around, namely police violence that just really, you know, sucked up all the energy 
um, and money and time that they ever had. And they were never able to really open this clinic. And the only surgeon who was really willing to work with them ended up being just like one of the most ghastly, terrible people, um, you know, to work in, in trans surgery. And so in some ways it's like, you know, a miracle that, that, that he never got, you know, to use trans people's money, um, in that exploitative way. But like part of the story that I think I, want to tell too, in order not to romanticize something like DIY is to talk about it as a story of class struggle uh, and to Mm -hmm. note that, yeah, like within trans communities, within trans communities, there's a longstanding fight over DIY and trans people's relationships to the halls of power, how much we collaborate with researchers and clinicians and doctors who want to study us in, in, you know, and, and therefore maybe we'll get a little bit of a chance to shape, you know, their gatekeeping apparatus. Like it's very complicated. It's very porous, but there's also just straight up like class fault lines. So it's like, you know, these poor trans women of color who are maybe, you know, mostly doing sex work, um, who are, you know, going out and getting hormones and reselling them for one another and administering them. Like it's sort of a fact of life. It's not necessarily something they imbued with like an added kind of moral or political value at the time, at least. But then you have all of these more middle-class, um, white, mostly white trans women who are, you know, in the trans print culture of the late 1960s and early 1970s, publishing columns railing against DIY mm-hmm. saying, don't you do that. Oh, you know, the only people who buy hormones off the black market are just cowards. They're too embarrassed. They're <laughs> too scared to go to their doctor. And you see even within trans community, right, these real race and class fault lines mm-hmm. where this kind of respectability politics, this sort of liberal, well, you should just, you know, make the doctor your friend. You should befriend the top-down power structure, right? Like we already see those kinds of arguments play out inside like these communities as well. And I think that that's such a helpful reminder to me, too, that sort of opposing the top down narrative of liberal institutions and of of capitalized medicine and of institutional power are very complicated. And it's not just about reversing the power structure. Right. Or, Or or sometimes I think especially I've said this a lot in my scholarly work, there's such a romance with like as if you could, if you just walk out of a doctor's office and do the same thing that would have happened inside the doctor's <laughs> office, that somehow it's radical and leftist. And it's like, mm, well, that's a really simplistic no. point of view, right? Like actually yeah. figuring out how to deliver healthcare to your, your community. If you're, you know, um, facing crises of housing, um, police violence and, uh, you know, face a whole bunch of other kind of questions around health that don't have anything to do with transition per se. It's like really complicated. And I think that's what's so important to me about digging into trans health as an example is it lets us like ask these questions in really nuanced ways that don't have obvious answers because like there's that sort of class fault line. And then maybe the other one I would, you know, put on the table is like the different components, right? It's not clear to me that it's very helpful to go to a doctor to get prescribed hormones just in in the abstract, right? Like they're mm-hmm. very easy. We hand them out like candy to non-trans people all the time. Like as long as you get like one blood test a year, most people are totally fine. Like I just don't think it's that complicated. But when we get to something like surgeries, which I also write about, like it's pretty hard to do surgeries yourself. Um, that actually doesn't mean no one has ever tried. And it's a really interesting set of stories. But like these are complicated questions, right? That's like, so mm-hmm. what would a more equitable access to surgery look like, right? Um, And I just think that that's, again, so fascinating to me, you know, in this era where 
if you have like blue chip health insurance, you might get gender affirming surgery if it's still legal, you know, but it's like something your insurance is billing like $70,000 for that, like, you know, people used to do, um, you know, in the basement of someone's apartment. Mm -hmm. Well, and I think that's one of the things that was just so wonderful about this piece, Jules, because it really got me thinking about not only the kind of idea of like, you can't just one for one reproduce something outside Mm. of the institutional context and expect it to be like liberatory or actually even function properly, right? And part of the the gotcha, I feel like, that you so often get when you talk about this kind of stuff, especially in the context of healthcare, you know, healthcare delivery, the kind of like, how do we make sure that we can distribute the resources evenly? I mean, and so I I love, you know, some of the failures that you get into this piece Mm -hmm. and the context of that, you know, understanding that movement work and, you know, attempts at at sort of reproducing liberatory structures and trying out different models for care and, and resource allocation. Like, these things don't happen in a vacuum. Like, they happen in the context of people's lives, which have other ongoing crises and sort mm-hmm. of political demands that they're going to have to grapple with and prioritize. And it's always such this, this bullshit gotcha that you hear in the context of, like, care. It's not only this zero-sum ideology of, like, if someone gets something in position A, then somewhere, someone will be like not getting something as a result, that kind of like one in one out mentality, the how are we going to pay for it ideology. But, you know, it's beyond that, the whole like, oh, well, it hasn't worked before, like it hasn't been able to be reproduced before. So it's never going to happen again. And that's like not the point of looking back at historical movements, right? It's not to like piece apart and find the perfect political ideology. It's not to like construct the rhetoric and the historical backing to say this has historical precedent and therefore is valid, right? Like it's about learning from the real events and experiments that people did in real time in the context of their lives. And that's why it's so important to not romanticize things and to also take it in context and sort of ignore those real sort of like nihilistic pessimists who who come in with the sort of question of, well, you can't even theorize a left approach to healthcare. You can't even theorize that without having a plan. Like you can't, you need the roadmap. Where is the roadmap? And the roadmap is always going to lead you towards, well, our goal is to be assimilated into the existing like hierarchy of medical authority and be recognized by the social role of the physician. And that's that's such a tragic and small goal. Like, and that mm-hmm. is ultimately mm-hmm. holding all like movements for health justice back, whether we're talking about trans care or rare disease care or abortion care, just in general, this lack of imagination and the fact that it always redounds to this kind of assimilation and respectability and recognition from the social role of the physician, that holds us back so much. It And it's so frustrating to see it reproduced over and over and over again. And I feel like you challenge it so well in this piece, Jules. Oh, thank you. Well, I mean, I think it's, I think it really plays out that complicated and To be honest, I think often we're brought to these moments in our lives where DIY becomes 
a solution to a problem that you sort mm-hmm. of arrive in, right? And for a lot of trans people mm-hmm. historically, that has been sort of how transition happens, right? You sort of are like, oh, oh, oh no. <laughs> and you're like, okay, well, <laughs> now I know this is a thing, but how am I going to do it, right? Um, and so, you know, it's like the, the the situation in which DIY arises, yeah, isn't this kind of premeditated programmatic way. And that's part of what's very interesting about it. It's so against the grain, I guess, um, of like, you know, enlightenment derived sort of empirically tested. And now in this day and age, double blind study or whatever, <laughs> um, you know, the kind of um, evidence-based healthcare that's completely fucking oh, over trans people so and people with disabilities that. and people with chronic illness, because guess who you can't do those kinds of studies on us. It's not ethical. Um, <laughs> but, you know, for the same reason, right. It's not programmatic. It's sort of anti-programmatic. And and the outcomes aren't obvious. And, you know, that's what I love about telling the stories. And like, you know, if I could sort of share one and, and invite listeners who are interested too, like there's this one person who's, she's so fascinating. Her name is Alicia Brevard Crenshaw. And she was kind of a legendary performer at the Finocchio's drag club in San Francisco, you know, as far back as the 1950s when you weren't actually allowed to be a trans woman to perform there. And so she was, you know, very, very secretive about it and transitioned quite early. Mm -hmm. And in the 1990s, she did an oral history interview with Susan Stryker, the historian and one of my mentors. And this interview, you know, the transcript of it is available on the GLBT Historical Society of San Francisco's website. So I totally encourage people to go read it because it's just so fascinating to listen to someone tell their life story, but also like a couple of decades ago before there was all this sort of spotlight cast on trans people. And Crenshaw was, you know, towards the end of her life and she had tried to sort of live a very respectable, glamorous kind of trans woman life. And, you know, there's a lot in that that I just sort of have an affection for. But also like she was kind of terrible and awful um, as a person. And like she had to come up in that poor working class tenderloin neighborhood and she really resented it, you know, because she was like a nice Southern white girl, you know, originally from Tennessee. (laughs) And so as soon as she was able to get access to bottom surgery, which she did relatively early, like truly like at the turn of the 1960s, she tried to like escape that neighborhood to get out of community, to stay away from poor trans women, to stay away from sex workers, to stay away from unrespectable um, in her eyes people because she thought and she you know in her interview uses all kinds of colorful language to talk about them but then she also tells this just absolutely mind-boggling story which I you know recap in in this in this essay of mine which is that she and her roommate performed orchiectomies on one another Um, and you know I I never know because I'm like such a nerd and I'm so like I live and breathe this stuff I have no idea what like surprises people anymore (laughs) Um, so like I don't know if it's like surprising that you could like perform an orchiectomy on someone else but like you know I, I as I'm often you know fond of saying I feel like you know natural selection was like you know we're going to put these gonads on the outside so that when trans women need to get rid of them, it's really easy. They're just sitting there. They're like basically begging to be removed from every male body. Um, And so like, you know, orchiectomy is also really fascinating because it's one of the oldest surgical procedures that human beings have performed on each other. You can find evidence of orchiectomies going back thousands of years um, in different Mm -hmm. parts of the world. 
And so it's not like doctors invented orchiectomy. Do you know what I mean? And it's not like Mm -hmm. a 20th century procedure. And so in the 1950s, though, it's really hard. It's basically impossible to get one in the U.S. if you're trans because, you know, all sorts of made up ideas about it might be illegal or you can't Mm. cut off parts of the body because, you know, there's old English common law. Yeah. Yeah. Mayhem. Like it's really bizarre, bizarre (laughs) stuff. Um, And so, you know, Crenshaw is like, what are we going to do? And she just comes up with this ingenious plan. Like she's already seen this doctor who is giving her hormones and she goes to the doctor and she's like, hey, doc, I need to castrate my cat. You know, totally normal thing. Like, how would I do that? And he's like, okay, well, you know, if you are going to do that, and he draws her a diagram. And the way she tells it to Stryker is that, like, while he's drawing her a diagram of, like, how you do an orchiectomy on a quote unquote cat, she, like, reaches into the cabinet and steals some, like, syringes and Novocaine and, like, some materials. Like, it's just so (laughs) incredible. It's, like, very cinematic. And then, like, you know, she takes that stuff home and she had grown up in rural Tennessee, um, actually performing castrations on different animals. So she had some, you know, understanding of the procedure already, like, on animals. And so, like, the way she tells it, her roommate and her, like, you know, pop a Vicodin, like put on a record, (laughs) sterilize Mm. their materials and are like, okay, we're just going to do this. And they do the surgery on one another. And then they wait 24 hours, terrified that something could go wrong and something bad might happen. There could be complications. And then they, you know, show back up at this doctor's office and they're like, okay, um, we did orchiectomies on each other. And the doctor's like, oh my God, uh, how, what were, what, what were you thinking? Here's some antibiotics. And like, and then they were fine, right? And the way that Crenshaw tells this to Stryker in the 90s that she literally put a comedy record on while performing the surgery because like you <laughs> oh have God. to laugh like that. And, and I just think there's so much like, she's such a complex figure. It's like, it's, it's really, it's a, it's a really intense story. It's like a story of perseverance. It's a story of expertise, but also like she's not a super redemptive person and it's hard to extrapolate from her. And ultimately she like just leaves this nugget to me that I'm always hung up on of like, yeah, you got to laugh. And sometimes you just got to get shit done. Right. And Mm -hmm. it's like, I don't know, there is a lot hidden in there. Um, I'm not sure that our job is always to tease out the implications from one person's story, but just like, I just think that it's such an interesting example of how complicated these stakes really get, right? And even even for someone like Crenshaw, you know, who pulled off a relatively difficult DIY surgical procedure, she still had to rely on some access to some doctor guy, right? And so it's just right. like, I think, again, these really complicated sorts of stories about like, yeah, even if you've decided you want to take something into your own hands, it's very hard. Um, and, you know, where you get expertise from, how you get technical knowledge, um, how you know how to create safety or create, you know, predictable conditions, how you know how to measure outcome, like all of that is is actually really complicated. And and I think it's sort of like part, part of what's interesting to me in telling the story like that is not just that I think it's remarkable and interesting. It's that the way that it's remarkable and interesting, the way that it kind of jostles you also also asks you to kind of like let go of all of the internalized presumptions we have about like how medicine or healthcare should take place or like how we should mm-hmm. or shouldn't exercise bodily autonomy, how we do or don't self-determine in everyday life. And just sort of mm-hmm. like what the actual menu of options that all of us collectively might be able to exercise at any given moment. Right. And it's like, when I think about that story to me, 
right? It's like, well, in the context of, you know, the 1950s, that was a better outcome than Crenshaw could have gotten anywhere else. But then Mm -hmm. as we're sitting there and thinking back on it now and looking at a time period where, say, even the same medical procedure, you know, if Oklahoma gets its way, will be illegal for anyone under 26, which Crenshaw, I think, was at the time. So then, like, what what does the Crenshaw in Oklahoma in 2023 do with that story? Do you know what I mean? Mm -hmm, Like, I think it's mm -hmm. a very complicated thing. And I actually don't think the point is that it's, these are not really individual choices. And I think though getting from sort of the Crenshaw kind of wily, you know, do it yourself story that has great sort of narrative power to the much more boring and frankly failed work of like activist organizations to scale that up, right. Is actually to me kind of where all the magic and the frustration really lies yeah yeah oh my god I love that story and it really I mean that that part of the of the article was very affecting for me because I don't know it's just so people have so much more power I guess than we realize certainly than we're encouraged to realize and I don't know it's just like so weird and terrifying and wonderful and like rich and complicated and um All of that stands in stark contrast to my experience of these things as someone who's trained in first biology and then, you know, public health, Mm. because, you know, as you said, like medicine didn't invent, you know, the, the orchiectomy medicine didn't invent a lot of these things. But if you read about, you know, self-managed abortion or Mm -hmm. syringe exchange or, drug checking or, you know, trans trans healthcare for that matter in the in the scientific literature, you know, what you'll get is, well, these things, you know, I mean, if you're reading <laughs> kind of like mainstream, you know, center center to progressive, I guess, scientific literature, what you'll get is these things are are good. They're important because the evidence shows that they improve health. Right. Um, you know, and it's like, well, okay, like, yeah. I guess so. Like the evidence, you know, the, the the statistical evidence, you know, like the the evidence from the biomedical literature, you know, it does show that like getting, you know, the healthcare that you need when you need it leads to leads to better outcomes for you. Um, Surprise! But you know, it it kind of reinforces it reinforces this idea that these things come from medicine, right? Mm -hmm. Like they come from medical authority. They come from the brains of physicians. And, you know, thank God that public health workers and doctors, you know, figured out uh, how to do syringe exchange. Of course, you know, that's not the story (laughs) of Mm -hmm. how syringe exchange came to be. But I think there's a lot of like reifying medical authority as like kind of a real thing in the world mm. that really glosses over, you know, stories uh, like the one you just told, Jules, right? Like the the actual kind of genealogy, like history of even some of these technologies, like there was like a, a plastic cannula that was invented, I think, in like the 1950s, 1960s that made performing like aspiration abortions a lot safer. But mm-hmm. that cannula was developed by someone who was, you know, a real physician, but had been illegally, you know, clandestinely performing abortions until abortion was legalized. Um, and then after legalization, it's like this weird feed forward feedback, you know, like this weird like interchange between clandestine providers, whether they're doctors or, you know, just lay people <laughs> um, and sort of like more more 
legitimate or, you know, legitimized forms of, of medical authority. But I just think the story that kind of like bubbles up to you, if you're anyone in any kind of like biomedical field is just like, well, out of out of thin air, like we we produced evidence that shows that these things that seem kind of radical, actually, you know, they're they're evidence based. And that totally just like, I don't know, there's so there's so much of this kind of like lay practice, lay expertise, like lay knowledge, DIY knowledge that just totally drops out. It's it's a weird kind of like epistemology of the of the physician, I guess. Like, Well, it's paternalistic, um, mm-hmm. right? But it also yeah. narrows the value of transition and the value of trans people's lives, right? That's like, I feel that way too. And, you know, I am privileged slash cursed in my day job to sometimes, you know, talk to physicians. And frankly, there's always a little part of me every time healthcare providers invite me into their spaces where I'm like, are you sure you want to talk to me? Okay. <laughs> um, because, you know, they have all these pressures on them to think that way, of course. And But I'm always like, when I see those that data, which of course is, you know, mobilized in the public all the time these days, it's like, but, you know, when you let this person uh, medically transition, you know, their depression rate goes down this much and their anxiety report rate goes down this much and suicidality goes down this much. And I'm like, okay, but like, that's not because there was like a medical pathology, you know, it's just like because <laughs> trans people are oppressed. So yeah, not letting them transition is like horrifying and fucked up. But then like also just like that, that's not the goal of transition to no. alleviate depression. Also because <laughs> no. like that really fucks over people. I mean, it's such a huge problem in trans healthcare that having quote unquote comorbidity is just like the kiss of death, you know, clinically mm-hmm. it's so challenging, especially if you have mental health diagnoses, you know, to manage getting access to healthcare. And it's even if, if even all of that wasn't true, I'm just like, but the purpose of letting someone transition isn't for them to show you that they're happy, like that, like happy yes. by your biomedical metric. That's oh. actually the narrowest way. And of course, can, you know, treating it that way is also not just like an innocent offering, right? By putting out that olive branch, so much is going to be demanded in return. And I just, again, it's like this way that transition has been actually so narrowly confined. And there's a sort of story of it I tell in this piece, which is about the gatekeeping model, the specter of the transsexual from the 1950s, this person <laughs> who only like a hundred people could ever become um, because you had to be, you know, what did transition really mean for those doctors? It meant mm-hmm. walking out of the clinic, a heterosexual, you know, a gender normative, respectable person who tried to blend in and disappear. And that may not have been what actually happened, but it doesn't matter, right? Like if you're setting mm-hmm. up the metric of that, you know, and equating that with health, well then like you, right? I mean, I think it's actually, there's a lot of power in people sort of looking at that and saying like, no, literally no, thank you. Like that's not, I'm not out here trying to do that in my life. And that's not the only reason (laughs) I want to transition. And I think it's one of the reasons I continue to feel that like the nexus point between trans politics and disability politics is just so important is that like, these are, you know, kind of ground floor insights, you know, from a disability, critical disability mm-hmm. perspective, right? That if we're predetermining human value and worth in advance and then tying resource allocation and life outcomes to people's ability to conform to that outwardly, you know, that is just, it's truly the least interesting. It's truly the most dehumanizing, but it's also just actually like the least... <laughs> 
it's not ambitious. Like, you know, I just think that like part of what's so fascinating to me about transitioning is that like, it's not at all what you think it's going to be like, but also it's just like, if you do that in your life, you just acquire a certain, you know, extra capacity and thoughtfulness because you've had to work, you know, a hundred times harder to do basic things. And lots of kinds of people in the world have to do that, right? People, you know, disabled people have to do that. People of color have to do that. Working class people have to do that. Immigrants have to do that. And it's just like, there is a kind of tenacity and creativity and expertise and authority that I just feel like, you know, in my bones, ultimately, like that's what I'm interested in underlining and and affirming too, not again in this kind of politically romanticizing or idealizing sense, but actually just because it's like, no, the real story is so much more interesting than the bullshit mm-hmm. that we're handed down. And it also just so happens that that accords with, you know, my materialist leftist politics of, of radical redistribution. So very nice <laughs> win-win situation. Synergy. No, and I, <laughs> I, I think that's one of the things that I, I keep thinking about and why I really wanted to talk about this piece on on the show because, you know, this is one of those great, pieces of writing that kind of engages with the fantasy of biocertification and and critiques mm. the validity of the kind of heroism of the patient who has like earned their positionality by jumping through all of the requisite hoops you know it's a kind mm-hmm. of like reification of the certified right and yes. i you know this kind of like real versus fake, this comes up all the time in the context also of like self-diagnosis, mm. right? Like in these contexts of does the diagnostic category confer a kind of legitimacy? And I think in terms of the kind of social role of the labeled, right, of people who have labels, whether they're self-diagnosed or whether they're diagnosed by a physician, people who identify in in whatever capacity as being part of that context, like that the way that you sort of pass into the legitimate context, right, is like through mm. the the dawning of the label, right? And and it's really quite sickening, especially in the context and subjecting yourself to medicalization. <laughs> You know, right. processes. Sorry to interrupt you. No, 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 exactly. And it's it's like and the, then the the sort of pinnacle of what we're aspiring to, right, is to sort of hit that diagnostic category. But if we think about really functionally what are diagnoses used for within the care delivery system, I think about this all the time mm. because I have a rare disease. I have a disease that in the context of diagnoses exists in like a medical context. Like you can put in like cryon in Epic in like the sort of mm-hmm. um, uh, chart management software and it'll recognize that as a diagnosis. Insurance companies, however, have their own metrics for which diagnoses they will recognize, right? And they have their own codes and their own ways of doing things. And in the context of like mental health, you have the DSM, which is, again, actually really an insurance document more than anything else. And so we begin to then sort of see the the feedback loop, like how the fantasy of biocertification 
helps to reinforce the kind of social role of the physician, not the physician themselves often, because the physician often rarely has any real power in the situation. And and especially Mm. recently, as we've seen the kind of consolidation and decentralization of care and the way that people are sort of overstaffed and overworked and spending so much time, you know, doing these billing codes that then are things that not only are, you know, sort of giving us access to care, but sort of mediating our identities. I mean, it's like it is Mm. kind of sickening and staggering when you start to really look at like how these things reverberate, how they kind of reinforce each other. Because if you sort of think towards like, okay, well, really, like, what is a diagnostic category doing? It's creating a kind of real versus fake hierarchy. And I think ultimately, like the kind of heroism of the proven and stamped, the kind of, you know, valorization of, of people who have jumped through all of the hoops, who have proven, you know, dotted all their I's, you know, they have proven that they've earned that status, you know, <laughs> that's a kind of like social performance that is <laughs> is for everybody else, right? Like, and it's the kind of thing that's also the thing we do not want to lean into, like at all costs. And I think ultimately, when it comes down to sort of understanding the, the role that sort of pathology plays in our lives, both in terms of access to resources, denial of resources, mediating identity with the state, mediating identity in your own life, understanding like who you are even, and sort of beyond that, like how you relate to the systems that pay for systems of care. And then what counts as valid care is obviously yeah. also dictated by that uh, sort of economic calculus of the insurance company or the formulary or whatever, because even in socialized medicine systems, like as we argue in health communism, we still have this austerity mindset, this zero-sum sort of restriction um, and designation of like what counts as official care. And it's all, of course, you know, evidence-based, but what we study and why is so biased and influenced again by the kind of social role that the physician is supposed to play and the kind of needs and incentives of maintaining medical authority. And and so, you know, you sort of see like that there's actually no opportunity to play the system perfectly and be able to sort of get into that certification that this kind of like a process of administrative burdens not only makes you feel unwelcome, but it's you're never supposed to actually be able to jump through all the hoops. You're never going to get that kind of full recognition. And, And it's something that I'm thinking back to like the early years of the HIV AIDS crisis where, mm-hmm. you know, the CDC definition um, for the diagnostic category was so narrow that It had to be primary transmission. So if you had someone who got it from like a shared needle, for example, or um, I think it was like a lot of women that were coming in with the diagnosis, Mm -hmm. like they just categorically could not qualify as having AIDS by the like CDC diagnostic category being so narrow. And so then we're denied access to services. Meanwhile, they absolutely have AIDS and are getting sick along the same timeline as the people who do hit that qualification and and that that kind of boundary that we all fucking pretend is real like Mm -hmm. that fucking cruel fantasy of there being real sick people real trans people fake people you know like 
it's such bullshit and it's such a trap. It's like a fucking like it it just it feeds itself, right? Like it and, and mm-hmm. it is a kind of self-reinforcing phenomenon. I mean, I'm like constantly thinking when I was reading this piece of Paul Starr and this his book, The Social Transformation of American mm. Medicine, which goes through like you know, two centuries of the United States medical system and the role of physicians. And there have been so many moments where this kind of role of certification and designation and the role that physicians play in designating who qualifies as like valid is so often leveraged by the state towards facilitating organized abandonment. And it's something that I think also takes advantage of the physician and puts them in the position where not only are they like, you know, in many ways often complicit, but then they're also sort of doing (laughs) this work and maintaining this authority, like actually for the state at the end of the day to make that kind of fantasy real for the state and that fantasy of competency and that eugenic fantasy that we can actually sort of have data on everything and know absolutely everything while we sort of turn a blind eye I'm using that intentionally and refuse to study things because they don't sort of fit into the worldview. I mean, it's it's one of those things that like, this is why I love the piece because the whole time I just, I feel like all of these stories that that you bring in, the kind of way that it pushes back on this kind of the super crip narrative almost that you see all the time, Mm. like mentioned in the disability context of these heroic tropes of kind of triumph of, uh, you know, productivity, <laughs> overcoming marginalized oppression, you know, like these are sand traps and we have to sort of push past them. But it's it's something that's very hard to do because it is really ubiquitous. I mean, it's like it's just hegemony. Like this is just <laughs> this is just life. But it's so helpful to sort of have that lens to look and to at least be able to see the kind of role that we all play, whether you're a physician or you're a patient, whether you're in the sick role or the physician role. And we, you know, physicians also pass into both roles, like recognizing sort of how these these play out in sort of systems of oppression and, and access and distribution of resources. Once you start seeing it, like you cannot turn it off. Right. And it's these are just such great examples to sort of add to that tableau. No, I I love what you're saying, B, and it 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 makes me think that it's important to sit with these really baroque kind of circumstances, right? Like I think trans healthcare, particularly in the United States, is really baroque and it has a really baroque history. It's Byzantine, it's, it's clunky, it's bizarre. Mm-hmm. It does a lot of really weird things that save for maybe the regulation of abortion and then also the biocertification of disability, right? These are some of the most Baroque situations that American healthcare has produced, right? So why do you have a field of healthcare that involves psychiatric supervision when none of the healthcare delivered is psychiatric? Like that, mm-hmm. it's just like literally the pro- Western problem of dualism, the separation of mind and body, like becomes this like, like, volcanic eruption, you know, sitting underneath (laughs) the clinic, um, the transsexual (laughs) clinic, right? Um, You know, you have, yeah, so you've got like the DSM is just hanging out, right? You know, trans healthcare is one of the most perfect, again, other than maybe the biocertification 
of disability, it's one of the perfect examples of a form of capitalistic healthcare that it's, you know, intentional purpose is to try and limit its own distribution as much as possible. So the, mm-hmm. you know, modus operandi of trans healthcare as established in the 1950s and 60s is let's try and stop as many people from transitioning as possible, right? And like these things have not been dismantled um, and mm-hmm. they remain. And they've you know, been it's accelerated. Like, I mean, we entered yeah, the Atul Gawande era of like the problem with healthcare access is overutilization. Super utilization. Yeah, like in yes. the mid 2000s. You cannot look back after that. I mean, even the NHS collapsing in the most recent months in the context of like COVID and RSV and scarlet fever and just months of like ongoing staff shortages. I was looking at coverage and they were like, oh, and it's it's not like that any of this is like causing the NHS to collapse. It's it's that just for for decades and decades, the NHS has been bloated and there's too much demand and this is why this is why we need to trust the markets and open more of the united kingdom up to for you know like private um healthcare essentially and that this this kind of embrace of the market right like this kind of warm embrace of the market that that would sort of fix the problem of overutilization and balancing that demand right but like Health, yeah. it, like not everything is economics. Like it's not always mm-hmm. like fucking supply and demand. And and sometimes well, like it's way more complex than that and it gets collapsed. And overutilization as a problem is something that is generated whole cloth from the market-based like structure of exactly. health finance and care provision. You know what I mean? Like mm-hmm. it is not mm-hmm. separable. Like the fundamental problem is that our healthcare system is like organized around profit extraction. It interacts with all these like weird politics, you know, the politics of payers, like all this stuff. And the very idea that there are people who are using too much healthcare. And that is like the reason why healthcare is like so unaffordable and fucked up. It's just, it's totally absurd. No, but I think it's, I think it's underlining all of this. And again, I think these are conversations that I wish were, you know, were part of the kind of, well, first of all, there's just like no public accountability for how trans stories are told anymore. So, you know, whatever. But if there were any, right, like I think talking (laughs) about some of the stuff is really important because, Mm -hmm. you know, limiting and regulating trans healthcare is always a way to, by proxy, pursue the eugenic policy of limiting or regulating or mitigating the amount of trans people in the world. And so that actually does become driven by a kind of market-based logic. And I think it's Mm -hmm. no coincidence that, unfortunately, some of the solutions being, you know, pedal. I mean, we just like, it's similar in the realm of abortion, the whole question of telehealth and, you know, is like obviously from a tactical standpoint, really important, but it's also like, here are these venture capital startups that will mail you your hormones, you know, and they're like really happy now that they're mm-hmm. able to work with insurance and da, 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 da. And it's just like, mm-hmm. here we are stuck here in are. these, you know, like the point is none of us need to be adjudicating how many people are trans and how many people transition more is great. Being trans is good. Transitioning is good. I don't care. Like, let's just think about these things in different terms. And I think that's where all of this 
takes me and, and where maybe, you know, this piece certainly ends up. And I think the sort of larger question that I know I'm still chewing on, I feel like, you know, coming on every episode of Death Metal to think through these questions with you all. It's like, well, how do we redefine legitimacy, right? Mm-hmm. Like, like what is legitimacy and how do we redefine value and worth, right? Outside of these metrics of deservingness and outside of these um, economic metrics that will never, ever establish you know, value or worth. And frankly, you know, in, well, these metrics, these economic metrics that will never establish value or worth in ways that are just. Uh, and so how can we, one, say then that whole system of accounting, that whole set of institutions is illegitimate. I revoke <laughs> your legitimacy, right? And I revoke mm-hmm. it on the authority of what? I mean, I think that's the interesting question for me about how to articulate something like transition in a less individualistic, a less identitarian, and in a more politicized kind of collective sense. And I think that's a really big challenge for trans politics. And, you know, for me, that's why I always think like trans political movements really don't need to stand on their own because also like that's not going very well. Um, better to be, <laughs> you know, in solidarity with, you know, say like a disability justice movement, reproductive justice movement, you know, these movements that are asking these big questions, like if we call bullshit on the legitimacy of, you know, organized abandonment on a mass scale, um, then, and we call bullshit on eugenics, then, okay, how do we actually learn to articulate positive visions of legitimacy that arise more close to our lives that arise out of the material stakes of our lives. And I think those are actually really complicated questions because, Mm -hmm. you know, we've been given these marching orders about how the world works, about what health is, about what a good life is, about what value are, about what health is for so long. And it's actually really hard to unlearn that. And I don't actually think that like, you know, particularly speaking, you know, from the trans perspective, I don't think many of the visions of trans freedom or trans agency, or even frankly, gender self-determination that have been advanced even on the left have been terribly sophisticated or frankly, any different um, than the sort of liberal marching orders um, and accounting politics and institutional kind of ass kissing, you know, that we've been sort of forced to endure for a long time. And I just think that, you know, again, it's like, never a bad moment to ask these questions, but like, gosh, are they burning urgently right now? You know? And I just (laughs) think like, for me, you know, every time my insurance plays that fun little game, it likes to play where it says this, you know, stupid ass vial of estrogen that you've been taking for years, technically is FDA off label prescribed. So we're just going to demand pre-authorization again for no reason. Um, Meanwhile, the supply chain of hormones has been so disrupted lately that it's like hard to get your hands on the stuff that you need. Whereas then, you know, for trans men, testosterone is a controlled substance, which is just like absolutely maddening and, and, you know, just absolutely mind blowing every time you have to, you know, go through that kind of route as if it's some sort of, you know, performance enhancing drug. I mean, just all of these ridiculous games, right. Where it's like, yeah, hmm, maybe biocertification, maybe, you know, private insurance, maybe this entire system is completely illegitimate. <laughs> then like, I think the thing that, you know, we sort of have the opportunity to do is start to define uh, those concepts and define things like exercising bodily autonomy or freedom or exercising collective uh, resource distribution differently. Like we have to spend time working on that um, for ourselves as well. And and that I think is, again, 
the place where for me, these DIY histories and legacies are kind of like a riddle, right? They are not prefabricated Mm -hmm. uh, concepts or programs or answers to those questions, but I think they push us and I think they can kind of challenge us to just to, to think bigger and ask for more. And, and I don't think that that's actually, you know, I'm realizing I'm often like saying stuff like that when I'm, you know, giving interviews to like, sort of very middle of the road media outlets. So it actually sounds really different when I say it out loud on death panel. Cause I'm like, yeah, that's what we're all here to do. Um, so I'm <laughs> right. so happy to be here. Um, but I think that work, you know, to me is so, again, it galvanizes out from, um, from the material stakes of our, of our lives and in our own communities and what we know to be true and the kind of expertise we've accrued through struggle that then scales. And when we sort of add that up together, I think, you know, we're starting to get somewhere really kind of fascinating and, and, and and that stuff just really thrills me too. I mean, you know, I just think like, Mm -hmm. um, you know, it's like, I <laughs> sticking the needle in my leg every week to eject the estrogen is very boring and uninteresting. I don't really care about it. And I often forget to do it. Like that's not what transition is. Right. But if mm-hmm. it's like a, a, an opportunity for me to think bigger and better about how I relate to other people about the kind of world that I want to contribute to um, and bring into being. And also like, my relationship to these successive generations of people who had to do all sorts of things to get, you know, to that place in their lives. And I think that's also just like, I don't know, I find that really galvanizing and also immensely reassuring. And I don't know, it just feels like an antidote to political depression, which, you know, I'm always, always looking for. (laughs) Well, and I think one of the things that, that COVID has really made obvious to a lot of people is that ultimately... There are so many better sort of ways that we could imagine doing things that are, you know, beyond simple reforms and that, you know, there are ways of sort of imagining achieving things through just the kind of recognition of interdependence, community responsibility, coordination and planning, collaboration, sharing resources, right? Like the the sort of problem in so many instances is that, you know, there's a kind of detour that happens before any of that thinking gets done, right? That's going to be a conversation about cost. And this is the kind of preoccupation that was really instilled in us institutionally in the United States by the eugenics movement. This is something that obviously has always been a factor. You know, if you look back to sort of the beginning of the U.S. Constitution and the kind of theories that people were engaging in, one of the things that was really inspiring was the idea of like the taxpayer and that sort of earning and proving your worth was a Love way that taxpayer. <laughs> right. It was like a way to gain membership and that it was mm-hmm. this kind of more egalitarian approach. And what it was was also a lateral embrace of the economic valuation of life. Like it was not a a divergent branch. It was not a kind of break in the economic logic, right? It was just a kind of lateral position and a sort of lateral expression of of a very contingent logic. And if we think about how the kind of role of the taxpayer developed in the early U.S. state and then how it sort of lands prior to eugenics, you have these sort of tremendous moments where 
medical authorities used to justify heinous shit. I mean, I'm thinking mm-hmm. back, Abby, to our conversation with Jim Downs about his great book, Melodies of Empire, mm-hmm. and the kind of uh, experiments that the United States was doing on like captive populations of children um, and babies to like inoculate soldiers and the kind of <laughs> ways that early medical authority really organized to facilitate and uh, shore up racial capitalism, expressly sort of creating legitimacy really formally in the terms of like uh, soundness determinations or even drapedomania and the kind of medicalization of difference and race science that emerges, but also more like informally and more subtly, more soft power vibes where you have the U.S. government saying, oh, well, we have like limited resources for a group of needy people. So like, how do we sort them out? And like medical authority steps up and says, we can sort them. And Mm -hmm. in so many ways, it's such, it makes so much sense to me that this is kind of the stage where eugenics becomes a kind of magical thinking and really becomes an obsession of so many people. And while, you know, the eugenics movement sort of iterated and and really changed and ultimately like went by many different names um, after the 50s. It became absorbed into mainstream statistics and that's just what it is now. (laughs) Right. Like ultimately the same principles sort of are always in play. And I always like looking back to the, the classic etching of the eugenics tree where you have all of the roots of the tree and their different disciplines from, you know, mathematics, history, but like statistics is like an overarching category and statistics branches out into like medicine. And you have this sort of idea of like the role of population control and sort of the management of like the normality of the body politic being at stake in the conversation, uh, the sort of just asking questions conversation about trans healthcare. Mm-hmm. What we have is aggressive legal administrative attacks to restrict healthcare on a group of people based on their identity. It's like textbook targeted discrimination, leveraging healthcare access, right? Like, This should be a very simple conversation for the storied gray lady and the New York Times. It should not be the kind of situation where Heron Walker's piece about Little Post Press needs to have a fucking disclaimer slapped onto it Mm. because this is just an article about a party of trans people who published some books and you have to make sure that that stands equally and has this disclaimer of like, oh, and you have to make sure to read our coverage about sort of questioning the validity of, of of trans care for children, essentially, and sort yeah. of forwarding all of these things that are just straight up lies, as we t- talked about on the show multiple times. And the idea that that needs to exist on the same level, right? Like that they thought, you know, that it was journalistic ethics, that it was like morally doing their necessary. Duty. <laughs> yeah. It's like, what? You, you motherfucking clowns. Like, do you see yourself? This is so simple. 
but this kind of preoccupation, right? And like the role that that the New York Times is playing here is this eugenic fantasy of, no, 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 we have to have the perfect body politic. And to those motherfuckers, the perfect body politic means knowing exactly how many trans people exist and making sure that you've got the absolute sort of minimum that you can get away with. And that's ultimately how this has been playing out. And unfortunately, what it's done is like completely add stress and and administrative burdens and risk of criminalization and extra pain and suffering psychologically from just having to deal with all of this bullshit to this entire community, right? So like, congrats, you've both failed trans people, you've made them feel worse, and you're not helping. Like, so could all of these reporters just like shut the fuck up for a moment? You know what I mean? Like, because this is the situation that we find ourselves in. It's, I mean, Baroque was a good way to to describe it, Jules. You know? Oh yeah, it's weird. It's get and it's getting weirder. You know? I mean, I think that's 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 the sad truth is things are getting really bad really fast in a hundred on and you know in a hundred different places. Um, but I think you know for all the same reason. That brings us back to this kind of central question that I just, you know, think the more time we could put in on it, the better, better we'll all be for it, which is like in the face of all of that, like, how do you take your body back, right? You can't steal it back as a piece of private property because that's Mm -mm. the logic through which it was captured and stolen in the first place. And that's the logic underpinning all of this bullshit, right? Whether it's the eugenic Mm -hmm. version of it or the neoliberal policymaking version of it or the evangelical Christian version of it or the anti-trans feminist version of it, it's all turning the body and turning gender into a piece of private property to be traded and sold and regulated and punished and confined. Uh, and, you know, I think one way or another, we're going to have to figure out how uh, how to experience and uh, exercise the capacities of our bodies outside of the realm of private property. And that is certainly one thing that, you know, I think a lot of trans people can relate to, but it's obviously something that, you know, enfolds and implicates all of us. So that struggle will continue. Um, but I think, I think, well, no, I don't yeah. have something, I don't have something galvanizing to say about that. I actually just <laughs> want to be a little, a little bitchy and pessimistic about it and leave it at that. I will say, okay, this is not optimistic at all. <laughs> well, you're allowed um, to be. I'm not trying to police Yeah, it. yeah, yeah. No, I mean, I was like thinking that it might be, but then I thought about it for a second and I was like, no. But uh, listening to, you know, listening to the past, you know, couple minutes of this, of this conversation, um, I really, I have not had this thought before, but you know, I kind of share a lot of frustrations with like the left in terms of like health justice more broadly. I really feel like a lot of people who I, you know, I would consider myself, you know, political sort of fellow travelers with um, think that, oh, you know, like we're going to get Medicare for all through legislation and, you know, healthcare is going to be exactly the same as what it is right now. And right. the difference is that it's just going to be like free and less, you know, financially predatory. And like, that's going to be great. And I think that like the there's a there's a challenge on one level for the left in terms of thinking about like health justice broadly and what that means. There are kind of like there are two challenges, I think, um, coming out of this conversation. The first one of those is like, OK, how do we disarticulate some of these techniques, like some of these processes, some of this knowledge from 
the capitalist structure of for-profit medicine, something like diagnosis, you know, like, and I mean, to do this, you have to have some kind of understanding that like science, including medical science is like historically and socially contingent. So, you know, like how, like, what would it look like to disarticulate like the process of diagnosis from the process of kind of like organizing payments, you know, into uh, this like structure of, of insurance-based healthcare. But then I think the, the, the more kind of interesting and maybe more generative, like open question coming from this is that, and I, I'm going to formulate it not as a question, but I think that the left, you know, that's concerned kind of like with, with health justice um, in, in whatever capacity, I think there's a real need to articulate some kind of alternative vision of collectivity because, mm. you know, the collectivity of like the collectivity of the body politic of the, of the United States or whatever, you know, like it's, it is, it's like subject to all these really like eugenic vibes and which people are, are entitled to, to which things. And I just think that we need a better kind of like vocabulary, I guess, or theoretical structure Honestly, I think about this question a lot and often find myself returning to Lauren Berlant's thing that they said they wanted written on their tombstone, which was they did what they could do at the time. And the mm -hmm. other thing I keep returning to is like the idea of we, we're not going to like reach liberation on the day that everyone wakes up like a good person that agrees with everyone else and that mm -hmm. this is a kind yeah, of comes like to consciousness. Right. That we spend so much time and energy on rhetoric. And I'm not saying that precision is not important. I think precision and accuracy is very important in terms of how we think about and talk about these things. We don't want to be making the kind of Adam Smith lateral move, you know, pulling the economic valuation of life from feudalism and dressing it up and plopping it right into sort of the, the the founding of the liberal state. Like, we don't want to make these kinds of lateral moves, right? We want to be asking the questions that push us past this. And I think one of the things that's very difficult, obviously, is that, like, we're not ever going to have definitive answers to things. And there are always going to be people who are not going to get sort of the framing, right? But like all of the time wasted on, I'm just thinking back to like the Medicare for all, the early days of the, the Medicare for all sort of resurgence in the 2016 election where you had people <laughs> being like, okay, but current Medicare sucks. So we have to make sure that we explain that Medicare for all is better than Medicare. And maybe if we call it Medicaid for all, People would like that matter better because people like Medicaid better. And I'm like, what? What the fuck <laughs> are you what talking about? <laughs> One, like, do you know, like, I'm not saying that Medicare is perfect, right? Like, you're not saying Medicare is perfect when you say Medicare for all, right? Like, asking the question, like, why does Medicare suck? And like, why are we prioritizing Medicare Advantage is a different conversation. Mm -hmm. But the amount mm -hmm. of mental energy and the time that we cannot get back that could have been used towards thinking about or doing anything else, we can't get that back, right? Like all the time arguing over, well, is it the right name? I mean, this is the funniest response that we've gotten to health communism so far, which is like, I agree with all of your ideas 
why did you name it something so polarizing and political? Oh. Maybe I did it on purpose. Did you ever think of that? And I love those people who are like, well, I'm all about abolishing the state and, you know, abolishing value, but not if we call it communist. <laughs> I'm all about yeah, I... abolishing the state. And that's why I'm all in Kamala for 2024. <laughs> <laughs> no, but I mean, not to be too earnest. Like, this is why I'm just like trying to keep Lauren Berlant's advice mm-hmm. at the top of my mind. Do what you can at the time. Keep Miriam Kaba's advice top of mind. Keep it moving. Don't waste your time arguing about what the policy should be called or if the title of the book is too controversial. If you really love family abolition, but why did you call it family abolition? That's so that's so upset. Like, come on. You know, and these are the kinds of like preoccupations that we waste time on that drain us. And I think I appreciated this piece so much, Jules, both because it gives us a kind of opportunity to break out into a kind of like looser conceptual conversation about like what it means to kind of try and navigate a political life right now and 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 political what ideology. What it means to do it yourself. Yeah. <laughs> but also because it kind of gives us an opportunity to kind of ask some of these questions about long term, like. How do we move forward? Because I think a lot more people, because of COVID especially, and because of some of these attacks on abortion access or trans care, have perhaps newly awakened or or sort of awakened as, a, as an adult with their consciousness sort of plugged into this. And we're going to have to buckle down for long-term struggle together. And this is sort of only happening, you know, if we sort of start to give ourselves the permission to do things like rethink collectivity and solidarity and start to rethink some of the things that we don't even question and we accidentally reproduce the kind of evils of the value form like incidentally, right? And don't interrogate those harms. Like this is this is all the kind of like long-term work we have the rest of our lives to do and hopefully like many more people will do this work after us and that's really ultimately the the goal i think is to help support each other through the ongoingness of struggle and that's kind of like always what we've wanted to do here on the show is have conversations that were not just like to talk about what was going on but sort of toward a vision of like, well, and and what else could exist? What else is possible? What, like, can we really understand what we're looking at in order to, you know, say something a little more than, well, Medicare sucks and why don't we call it Medicaid? You know, like that, <laughs> that kind of, you know, semantics game, the, the very third way politics about finding sort of the exact right phrase it's it's you know it's like a bunch yeah, of the Matt Iglesias approach <laughs> yeah like a, you know we don't need to participate in that elaborate branding exercise like we're we've got much better things to do with our time and we've got to do what we can with it and I, and I, I do think like these kind of <laughs> the kind of failures of, of 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 in particular like some of the DIY the DIY clinic idea that that Tao was trying in Miami the kind of things that were run into in implementing things beyond kind of intervention programs. And and these are all the kinds of questions that like we can look to and someone might have like a great idea for a different way to try it. But if there's no structure to facilitate these kind of experiments, like, you know, you're not getting like a Medicaid block grant to like fuck around with delivering 
trans healthcare accessibly. <laughs> like that's never going to fucking happen, right. right? And so we have to sort of give ourselves permission to step outside of, I think, the kind of, uh, you know, stamped and official institutionalized uh, pathways of authority that we're so used to as seeing as a kind of endpoint of a lot of social movement work. And that that can't necessarily be our endpoint anymore. And it's going to take work to sort of pick a different horizon that we can all move toward together. So beautifully put. Yeah. And I think, you know, as more and more people are sort of pulled in and activated or worried or fearful or whatever brings them, right, um, you know, into the fold, I think one thing that that all of us get to turn around and say that's actually kind of delightful and exciting is welcome to the party. Here we go. Yeah. <laughs> welcome to the party. Welcome to the death panel. Welcome exactly. to the death panel. <laughs> that's right. This has been so much fun. I think this is probably a good place to leave it for today. What do you think? Yeah. Yeah, I think so. Okay. If you want to read Jules's piece, you totally should. It was in The Baffler. We will link to it in the episode description. It's called Doctors Who Radical Lessons from the History of DIY Transition. And to support the show and get access to our second weekly episode, become a patron at patreon.com slash deathpanelpod. If you'd like to help us out a little bit more, share the show with your friends, post about your favorite episodes, pick up a copy of Health Communism from your local bookstore or request it from your local library, and follow us at deathpanel underscore. Patrons, we'll catch you Monday in the patron feed. For everyone else, we will see you next week. As always, Medicare for all now. Solidarity forever. Stay alive another week. 